Mr. Mayor Paul, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I'd like to begin by asking you who your parents were. Uh, why are they so well-known, famous, infamous, whatever the word is in American history? Yes, well, my name is Robert Mirapol, but I was born Robert Rosenberg. I uh, was adopted by Abel and Ann Mirapol when I was seven years old. Uh, after the executions of my parents, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, who were charged and convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage. That was the technical charge. But in terms of how it was presented to the public, it was really presented as Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, members of the American Communist Party, who stole the secret of the atomic bomb and gave it to the Soviet Union in 1945. Uh, and their, their arrest took place in 1950. The trial took place in 51, and they're they were executed on uh, June 19th, 1953, when I was six years old. So that's that's kind of who I am. Uh, and, and, and that's that's why uh, I guess I'm being interviewed. Uh, <laughs> now, you had spent a large portion of your younger life my understanding is, believing that your parents were innocent of these charges. My understanding further is that over time, that has changed to a degree. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty in interesting evolution. I was, uh, uh, my, my older brother, who was four years older than me, uh, never let me forget about the case. We always knew uh, what happened. I was old enough to understand sort of and he, at 10 years old, when the execution took place, knew entirely. And we were shuttled around as children to supporters of my parents. So we continued to live in an atmosphere where we were told that my parents were framed. Were framed because they were Communist Party members, uh, framed because of anti-Semitism. Uh, and so I grew up believing what the adults who were raising me told me including Abel and Ann Mirapol, that Ethel and Julius, my parents, were totally and completely innocent. Uh, uh, that changed over time. Uh, when I was originally trained as a cultural anthropologist, but and I taught cultural anthropology at the college level for a few years, but I never completed my PhD and was sort of unhappy with the, well, I, I think because I had a troubled childhood, I had a difficult time figuring out what I was going to do when I grew up. And uh, that, so I changed course and went to law school in my 30s. And going to law school, look re-looking at my parents' case through a lawyer's eyes, I began to see things a little differently. Uh, I looked at all the evidence that we had gathered that demonstrated that my parents' trial was unjust and unfair. Uh, and when, but I realized that just because the evidence presented against them was false, just because there was a frame-up, uh, doesn't mean that they were innocent. It's actually possible to frame guilty people. Uh, 
In fact, I think the prime example of that is the O.J. Simpson case, uh, where I think he was guilty, but good defense was able to show that the Los Angeles Police Department fabricated some of the evidence, and that created reasonable doubt. So the jury, I think, correctly found him not guilty, even though he was guilty, because the government or the Los Angeles Police Department and prosecution were trying to convict him on false evidence. Well, the same could have, I realized the same could have been true in my parents' case. And that started what I called my agnostic phase. Uh, I really didn't know. Uh, and then in the ninth, late 1980s, I, I graduated law school in 85. In the late 1980s, as the Soviet Union unraveled, uh, evidence began to come out that showed that my father was involved in something. Uh, that, and in 1995, when the Venona transcriptions were released, and these were encrypted uh, messages sent by the Soviet consulate in New York to Moscow uh, during World War II that were intercepted by the precursor of the National Security Agency, NSA, and it was all encrypted. It took them years to decrypt things, but finally, as they uncovered what the messages, snippets of what the messages really said, uh, this material was released in 1995, and those snippets indicated that Julius Rosenberg did commit espionage for the Soviet Union during World War II. Uh, and, but at the same time, they, one of the things we found out from these messages was that the KGB gave all of its agents in the United States code names. My father had a code name, my uncle and aunt who became the chief prosecution witnesses had code names, but my mother had no code name. Uh, and that, uh, made us realize that if you actually looked at the evidence presented, there was nothing presented against my mother except oral testimony of David and Ruth Gringlass, my uncle and his wife, who later admitted that they, you know, that they lied about Ethel. Uh, so when you put all this together, I realized and looked at the content of the Venona transcriptions. And I know I'm going on rather long here, but I, I, it's really important to understand this, that there's actually a Venona transcription which states that the spy, who was they say is Julius Rosenberg from his code name, and I believe he was, uh, was ignorant of the atomic bomb project. So how could the master atomic spy accused of stealing the secret of the atomic bomb be ignorant of the atomic bomb project. Uh, so this caused a reassessment. And I came to the conclusion that my father was a military industrial spy, that he endeavored through various technical knowledge, he was an electrical engineer, to provide the Soviet Union with military information to help them defeat the Nazis during the 1940s. And that but that my mother was not a spy. Uh, and 
so my the conclusion that I came to was that my father was guilty of espionage, but not of atomic espionage, which was the justification for the death sentence. And my mother was not a spy at all. Uh, that's that's how we came. And and one of the mechanisms, the key mechanisms that we used in order to determine this was the timing of our effort was fortunate in that we decided as young men, we were in our 20s, my brother and I, that we were going to reopen our parents' case. Our names had been changed. We dropped from public sight. Nobody knew who we were. We disappeared for 19 years from 1954 to 1973. And then we filed a precedent-setting Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, which was uh, the Freedom of Information Act, or otherwise known as FOIA, was uh, strengthened in the wake of the Watergate scandal in the early 1970s. And this gave us the opportunity to use this new strengthened act to ask for this material. And as this material came pouring out, people said to us, well, you're using the vehicle of freedom of information. What happens if material comes out that proves that you were your parents were guilty? Aren't you taking a big chance doing this? And first of all, we said we didn't believe that would be the case. But second of all, even if it did show guilt, uh, it was more important for the public to know what the government did in their name than for us to prove a political point about our parents. So we were willing to take that chance. And our focus on freedom of information has continued to this day. There have been accounts over the years and decades that followed the conviction that Roy Cohn, the prosecutor in the case, who I want to talk about a bit later, had indicated that there was evidence obtained against your parents that effectively he couldn't use in court because of the political interest at the time, because of a fear that the Soviets would find information and, and codes that were being stolen by the Americans. Now, look, I'm a lawyer, so I never believe the ends justify the means in that regard. Um, what is your position to the folks that say, look, espionage is a particular kind of crime. It is a crime that has within it interests of national security. And unless you're somebody who has been in the trenches, who has suffered from a failure of national security, you'll never understand what it's like to prosecute this kind of case and to look out for those kinds of interests. What's your response to that? Well, I think that what the the more the most general response is, first of all, you know, we talk about Roy Cohn, who was a, a, a prosecutor and was at that and then very quickly after that became Donald Trump's mentor. Uh, uh, what we now know is that Roy Cohn secretly communicated with the my parents' trial judge before, during, and after the trial, which is, of course, totally improper. Um, and we have, I mean, what's amazing about that is because of our Freedom of Information Act, we have all this information uh, available. That's what's unusual about my government, my parents' case is we have hundreds of thousands of pages of prosecutorial material. So we know both sides of the case. Uh, and that is, you usually don't get that. Now, but stepping back, 
Look, there is, and, and I think this is very important to understand, there is a basic tension between security, between secrecy and democracy. Okay. In fact, they're antithetical because you can't have an effective democracy unless you have an informed public who is who, who make their decisions based upon knowing things. And the more secrets the government keeps, the less people can know. So there is that constant tension between security and democracy. And we have to recognize that. And what we find with the claims of national security is some of them, as you described, are perfectly legitimate. You know, uh, Donald Trump giving away the capabilities of our nuclear submarines uh, is a national security issue. Uh, the NSA, the National Security Agency's refusal to release their documents to this day related to my mother and their determination of whether or not she was a spy, that's, you know, for a 73-year-old case, that's that's not a national security issue. So the reality is, is that these claims are legitimate in some cases and illegitimate in others, and you invoke national security so you can't tell the difference between the two. And that is antithetical to democracy. So that is something we have, we wrestle with and grapple with all the time. And we discover that the more the government decides to keep secret, the more information that is kept secret has nothing to do with national security and everything to do with embarrassments or corruption uh, of that sort. So that's my answer. Now, just to follow up on that, we are, as you mentioned, so many years removed now from this case. Clearly, there is not as strong, nearly as strong, uh, security interest in maintaining secrecy in these files. You've indicated that, uh, at least you've implied, that there have been difficulties over the years in obtaining this information. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that it, I think that there's a number of factors. I think when we started our first Freedom of Information Act in the 1970s, there were still people in charge of the files who knew what were in the files. Mm. Okay. Uh, but, uh, and so they were fighting because they didn't want the public to know that my parents' trial judge secretly communicated with the prosecution. Uh, they didn't want uh, the public to know that when that prosecution witnesses were brought together to iron out discrepancies in their story. They didn't want to know all the things that questioned the prosecution. They didn't want the public to know that. But I think as time went on, when we're talking now today, when we have asked the National Security Agency to release all its files related to Ethel Rosenberg, and the use of code names uh, by the KGB, um, that their statement that it could take them five years just to review and determine whether or not they can declassify this material, uh, we we you know we think that's absurd. Uh, this because this case is so old. So that's um, that's where the kind of uh, the change that occurred 
was initially all these people actually knew what were in the files. But now the custodians of the files are people who were not born in the 1950s. Uh, and they don't know what's in there. And I think their main reason, reason for keeping them secret is not necessarily because they're embarrassed by their content, but having to do with bureaucratic prerogative. And this gets to the heart of the issue I was describing before. The bureaucracy feels that they're their files and that they have to control them. And that is antithetical to the basic democ democratic principle that the files are actually the people's files and that the people should have the right to know what the government is doing in its name. So I think that it's, it's more that basic ideological difference between the custodians of the files and their wanting to keep their power and bureaucratic prerogative. I think that's what's going on now, rather than people actually saying, well, there's a that we can't release that memo because it would embarrass us. Because I think the custodians of the files are so ignorant of my parents' case because it was so long ago that they don't even know what's significant and what isn't. Now, you know better than I do, I'm sure, better than most people, I'm sure, that there are numerous mechanisms in the law to reopen old cases, to exonerate folks that were apparently wrongfully convicted, clemency, motions to vacate, so on and so forth. What of those have you, members of your family, explored over the years? Well, I think that, you know, one of the problems that you have with an execution is that you can't bring anybody back. I mean, it's the problem with the death penalty. You can't make a mistake. You can't file a motion to vacate a judgment and actually have it have an impact on someone who's alive. Uh, so uh, what we have, and so the typical kind of thing is to go for, some, for something like a posthumous pardon. Well, the problem with a pardon is that a pardon is an acceptance of guilt. It's, it, it implies that you're guilty of something. And we don't think our mother was guilty of, of anything. And that's why, other than being a wife uh, and supportive of her husband, I mean, I think my mother understood the, that Julius was engaged in illegal activity, but understanding and even agreeing with his actions is not a crime in our country. You have to actually support them by acting on them. And there's no real evidence that my mother did that. Uh, so uh, we have trying to get to the bottom of this uh, and uh, understand my mother's innocence. We, well, we can't do a pardon. So that left us with going for an exoneration. Now, an exoneration is not typical. Uh, um, in fact, probably the most famous exoneration uh, occurred or uh, through two other political prisoners who were executed in the 1920s in Massachusetts, known, called Sacco and Vanzetti, that the governor of Massachusetts, 50 years after their death, issued a proclamation declaring that their trial was... Uh, conviction was wrongful, prejudice, and therefore that uh, it should be their, the stain of guilt from uh, their personages should be removed 
And we use that as a basis to ask President Obama, before he left office in 2017, to do the same thing with my mother. Well, that what we were asking him to do was to declare her conviction wrongful because the only evidence presented against her at trial was by two people who were shown to be perjurers and the jury never knew that. Uh, and so, and we asked Obama to basically declare her, her conviction wrongful, therefore her execution wrongful. And we said, he didn't need to say, I exonerate Ethel, but we would consider it an exoneration if he did that. Well, he left office without doing anything. Um, and, you know, a lot of that had to do not with, with, with the particulars of our request so much as the shock that they had that Trump actually won the election, uh, and they have bigger fish to fry. And now, uh, with Biden and we knew with Trump in office, uh, whose mentor when he was a young man was Roy Cohn, one of the architects of my mother's execution, um, the man who spoke privately with the judge as a prosecutor before and during and after the trial. Um, and so we knew it was worthless to try to get Trump to do anything. When Biden came into office, we began the process of reinitiating that effort, uh, that the same effort we did with um, Obama. The problem is, is that Putin then invaded Ukraine. Uh, and that, the fact that Russia today is a very different country from Russia in 1945, but the very fact that my parents were convicted of spying for the Russians and helping them at a time when Russia was once again our main enemy, and the Democratic Party in particular was most focused on that, we knew that Biden did not really have, this was not a good political time for him to issue an exoneration. So we shifted gears and we took a look at how do we gather more ammunition to make our case even stronger than it is. And we, when the Venona transcripts were released in 1995, there was one tantalizing memo. The NSA said we've released all the transcriptions of the secret Russian communications, but they also released one memo, which is curious because a company memo, a memo by the chief decryptor, a man by the name of Meredith Gardner, who only died about, sorry about that, who only died about, um, uh, I don't know, about 10, 15 years ago, he lived till he was 95. And he wrote a tantalizing memo about my mother in which there's a, a Venona transcriptions that refers to my mother by her name and says, uh, because of delicate health does not work. And uh, Meredith Gardner did an analysis of this, of the Russian words and everything. And he came to the conclusion that it meant that Ethel Rosenberg did not do espionage work, that it wasn't about her earning her daily bread, but she wasn't engaged in secret work. Now, this was just one memo, and he used the word per perhaps in the memo. So there's an equivocation there. Uh, 
But we, it suddenly dawned on us. This was, came out in 95. It suddenly dawned on us in tw after 2020 uh, that, wait a second, there's only one memo? They said they released all the transcripts, but there must be other memos. So in the summer, so we shifted gears that in the summer of 2022, we asked for all the files that the NSA had under its control uh, related to my mother and the use of code names. We made a very specific request. We were told, uh, it took them months to respond. We were told that there were, at the National Archives, because this material is so old, there were 200 boxes that contained between 300,000 and 500,000 pages that could be related to our case. Now, let me make that, they're not saying that there's 500,000 pages related to Ethel Rosenberg. The way it works is they had 200 boxes. Um, uh, and they might put 5,000 pages in a box. And one of them might refer to my mother. And, but there's no table of contents. There's no index. And so they said, we're going to have to go through all of these boxes. And it's going to take us up to five years to do this, just to find out what's in there that relates to your mother. And then we'll consider declassifying this. Well, you know, I would say information delayed is information denied. I'm 76 years old. My brother is 80. We want this information before we die. Uh, and this information is, is over 70 years old. So what we're saying now is, and we're working with our local congressman, George McGovern, who uh, is the ranking member of the Rules Committee uh, um, in Congress, uh, to get these to be blanket declassified uh, so that all the material can be released to the public and the public can decide from the, for themselves. And really there can be no rational reason for keeping them secret. And we're willing to take the chance that something in there is going to show that we're wrong in some way. We don't believe that's the case. We believe there'll be more material in there that will show that the NSA concluded that Ethel was not a spy. Um, and we will then use that to go back to President Biden and say, uh, you know, we want you to exonerate our mother. Uh, and, you know, someone might say, well, why is this important? Why is it important for us to understand? Well, of course, the whole concept of freedom of information is central to, to democracy, as I've explained before. But also, there's been a lot of... Uh, interest in the film Oppenheimer uh, and the revelation of all the terrible things that happened during the McCarthy period. And one of the things about the Oppenheimer film uh, is that the only reason they could make that film and have that dramatic ending, I don't want to do spoilers, uh, where it's revealed the vendetta against him was because this material was all secret. And it took years of people working to force it into the public eye through the Freedom of Information Act. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here, because that's the only way we're going. Learning from our history is a way to avoid 
the same kind of errors that we've had before. And we know that the issues of overclassification uh, have become very prominent today and very important today. And as we get to a democratic crossroads, that's what I call the 2024 election, uh, understanding the importance of letting the public know what's going on and not keeping things secret become even more important. We've been dancing a bit around this Roy Cohen question. There had been post Trump's election in 2016, renewed interest gathered as it relates to Roy Cohen and parallels that were drawn right between the aggressive posture he took in your parents' case and the aggressive posture he took in the representation of Trump in the mentorship of Trump over the years. What do you say to those parallels? Well, the parallels are, are kind of amazing because what, what Roy Cohn's MO was, was essentially if someone charges you with something, you countercharge them with doing the same thing, only worse. Uh, and this is exactly what the MO that Trump has used. You know, Trump has been shown to be essentially a mafioso-like crime family leader uh, if, between tax avoidance and various other shenanigans. And what does he do, do? He turns around and he accuses the Biden family of doing the same thing, only worse. Uh, Trump had been accused of molesting teenage girls. Uh, well, what is he, what is, what, what's done? Well, you know, the Democrats are all involved in this Pizzagate thing where there are, you know, they're, they, they, they're pedophiles who, or who eat children in the basements of pizzerias in Washington. I mean, you know, this crazy stuff. But what it is, the MO of it is, whatever you're charged with, you charge the other person with doing the exact same thing, even worse. Uh, and that's, that's the legacy of Roy Cohn. And that's what we live with to this day. Uh, so that is, uh, you know, it is, it kind of amazes me the way my parents' case, which is an old case, reverberates today. Because, you know, you can't, I mean, I'll give you an example of the way these things, you, it's almost beyond, you know, belief that it's, that it's real. That Roy Cohn, who becomes the mentor of Donald Trump, was one of the principal architects of my mother's execution. Um, and then Donald Trump, uh, goes to, you know, gets help in being elected by Vladimir Putin, who wants someone who's going to be more sympathetic to Russia to be president. And then Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine, making it more difficult for us to exonerate our mother. And you've, you've come to this full circle. Um, and there are other parallels, uh, as well that kind of amaze me. Uh, but the point is, is even though my parents' case is now approaching 75 years old, it is as current as it was the day it happened. Mr. Mayor Paul, I want to finish up by asking you what you're up to these days, the Rosenberg Fund for Children. What are you doing today to further your parents' cause, to further your efforts, uh, and 
your work in general? Well, we are working on this freedom of information effort and trying to uh, move forward with this. And hopefully that will lead to another call for exoneration of, of my mother. That continues. Uh, but uh, in it, as I described before, it took me a long time to figure out what I was going to do when I grew up. In fact, it took me until I was 43 years old. Uh, I left private legal practice and founded the Rosenberg Fund for Children, a public foundation that provides for the educational and emotional needs of the children of targeted activists in the United States. Uh, and these days, uh, there are a lot of them. Uh, and if Trump is elected, there are going to be a lot more. Uh, but what we do is we raise money and we give it away uh, to people who have been working for one or more of the following principles. All people are have equal worth. People are more important than profits. World peace is a necessity and society must function within ecologically sustainable limits. If you get in trouble for promoting any one of those principles, like you get fired or you get put in jail uh, or you get attacked in one physically in one form or another, your children become eligible for our support. And we've, you know, this was something, a dream I had. I didn't know whether it was going to be successful. Uh, I started it in 1990. Uh, the first grant we gave away in 1991 was for $802.50. Uh, we've now given away almost $10 million uh, in our 30 plus year history. We give away about $400,000 a year to help several hundred kids all across the country uh, and targeted activist youth who are themselves out in the streets and being targeted. So I founded that in 1990. I retired uh, in 10 years ago. Uh, I'm still on its board of directors. I'm still the treasurer. I still consult with my daughter who uh, runs uh, the foundation uh, and continues to build it. Um, and we have on our advisory board, my other daughter, who is now a senior staff attorney at the national office of the ACLU. Um, so uh, that continues. We continue this effort in one form or another. Uh, and I'm 76 years old. So as a retiree, I also try to take it easy. But sometimes that's difficult. <laughs> Mr. Maripal, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for telling the history behind your parents' prosecution, uh, their plight, and your story. Thank you so much. Thank you.